0: Blaise Pascal, he was a 17th century French mathematician and philosopher. He spoke famously of the, what he called the grandeur and the misery of man. The grandeur and the misery of man. Here in our text this morning from Psalm 8, we might say that the psalmist is expounding the grandeur and the littleness or the grandeur and the lowliness of man. What we have in Psalm 8 is a a glimpse, an inspired glimpse into the place of man in the cosmos. But as we will see, the New Testament will not let us see here simply a meditation on the wonders of the heavens or a statement about the dignity of man's role or man's reflection of God's image. Those things are there to be sure in the text and we should heed them. But we are going to have to allow the New Testament to guide the way we interpret the old. Very important principle of interpretation. So we'll make two points from Psalm 8. Two points. One is praise. And the other is the man of Psalm 8. Praise and the man of Psalm 8. So first, praise. The the, the first half, you can see it in the psalm, the, the beginning of verse 1. And verse 9 are identical. And they function like brackets for the poem, for the song. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. It's a cry of worship. Indeed, it's a cry of corporate worship. And here we're reminded again that the Psalms were composed for use in the temple worship of Israel. Right? The Psalms are not simply the private thoughts of the psalmist. They belong to the covenant community. And you pick that up here in the tender words, O oh Lord, our Lord, our Lord. Much like Jesus' prayer, what we call the Lord's Prayer, starts with our Father. Not my Jesus or my Father. So the Lord of all, the God of the covenant community, together, together we gather to extol His greatness. Praise is basically a corporate phenomenon. His name is the center of attraction in this text. It's majestic. It's excellent in some translations. In all the earth, This, by the way, is a sort of, um, in the context of ancient Israel, this is a sort of joyful slaying of a sacred cow, right? You have a world here into which the psalmist is writing, which is very pluralistic. You know, we think of America as a pluralistic society, but the ancient world is swarming with gods and goddesses, and into that context the psalmist says, O Lord, our Lord, the God of Israel, your name is the one which is majestic in all the earth. It's a denial of the pluralism, of the syncretism, of the religious environment. It's the God of Israel who's revealed in the creation. And this means the whole array of earthly, you know, terrestrial things, from ants to rivers to mountains to canyons to flowers, is, in Calvin's word, a glorious theater. This is a theater. We opened with the hymn, O Worship the King. It says, The earth with its store of wonders untold. Almighty thy power has found it of old. And goes on to speak of the Lord's bountiful care. A care which breathes in the air, shines in the light, streams from the hills, descends to the plains. And so all that meets our eyes is crying out. It's crying aloud with his excellence and his glory. And this means creation is not only a theater. It's not only something you see. It's a perpetual sermon. It speaks. And so the only question is, are we listening to it? Do our hearts respond to it? We have a problem here, right? The w- life in general just has a way of making us dull <laughs> to the choirs which confront us on every side with God's glory. That's part of the function of corporate worship. It's to wipe the dross off your eyes, the eyes of your heart, so that we can see better again. Did you see any glory on the way to church this morning? Yeah, I think we're just too modern And scientific and rationalistic here. What we saw was what the forecast told us we would see. It's kind of sticky out there. It's kind of humid. It's going to be about this temperature. Might rain, it might not. No glory. We don't see any glory. We just see the forecast. The psalmist sees the name of God. His renown. And he says it's majestic, it's full of splendor. Everywhere in the earth, God is not hiding himself. He says he set his glory at the end of verse 1 above the heavens. So it's not only in all the earth, it's also above the heavens. It permeates the created order. Above the heavens, the Lord has hosts who forever chant his glory. Now, what's interesting here in this psalm is from this scene, the heights of splendor, this majesty and glory, which is everywhere, the psalmist quickly, starkly really descends in verse 2 to the humility and the weakness of babes. From the mouths of children and infants, the text says, you've ordained praise because of your enemies to silence the foe and the avenger. That's an odd transition. The glory of God, which dwells above the heavens, whose name is excellent in all the earth, is a glory which uses the mouths of helpless babes to silence his enemies. Whatever this glory is, it really has a strange calculus about it, doesn't it? It's displayed in all the might and wisdom of nature, and it's equally on display in the words of weak little children. And it's right here that we begin to see that the true subject of this psalm is our Lord. Remember, after Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem to die, and the children are crying out, they say, Hosanna to the Son of David. And then Jesus is asked by his enemies By his enemies, do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus replies, Have you never read out of the mouths of infants and nursing babes, you have prepared praise? Jesus cites Psalm 8, verse 2, and applies it to his triumphal entry to die. There are, of course, lots of ways that infants and young children show forth God's glory, but none so telling as those who hailed him as he came into Jerusalem to die. It's finally out of the mouth of the baby born of Mary that God silences his foes. And so this means that the man in this text is finally Jesus Christ. We'll say more about this in just a moment. So our second point is the man of Psalm 8. The man of Psalm 8. So the psalmist steps back from the young children. Looks back up at the heavens. A lot of scholars think this meditation in Psalm 8 took place at night. Because the moon and the stars are mentioned, but the sun isn't mentioned. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon, and the stars which you have set in place. And so here he's overwhelmed by this vast, ordered, shining intricacy. And you know, there's something here which should be a kind of chastisement to our modern arrogance. Even 3,000 years ago, Even 3,000 years ago, before we had know-it-all scientists on PBS blathering on about the cosmos, everybody knew about the staggering immensity of the cosmos. We didn't know how big it was, but 3,000 years ago, the psalmist understood it was enormous, and he felt his smallness. He felt overwhelmed by it. And this is not something that we've just figured out. He feels this littleness. He senses something of what you might call the cosmic insignificance of man. Look at verse 4. What is man that you're mindful of him? What is the Son of Man that you care for him? I mean, it's a penetrating question. And if all you're doing is scanning the heavens and you ask the question, what is man? You're not likely to get any good answers. I mean, as a single grain of sand is to the whole earth, man is even less in light of the grand expanse of the heavens. And so we know what happens, right? Moderns see this, and they think the conclusion must be that there's nothing special about man. But this isn't humility, it's a counsel of despair. And what you should note is no modern actually lives as if their lives and relations are cosmically insignificant. There are no people who live this way. There are just intellectuals who talk this way. You know, the scientist, there was a, a very good scientist in the latter half of the 20th century, Hungarian scientist actually, named Michael Polanyi. He, he had, was a physical chemist. And he did some work with Einstein. And in the latter half of his life, he became a very good and renowned philosopher. He was concerned with what science had done in Eastern Europe and in the Soviet Union. And so he started to ask questions about the underpinnings of science. But Polanyi once said that if we were to simply scan the heavens, to scan the cosmos, and try to deduce Figure out what's important and what's not. He said, what we would have to conclude is that we should spend all of our time studying intergalactic dust, since there's more of that than there is of anything else. I mean, so what, man, is small? Polanyi pointed out, of course, nobody spends all their time studying intergalactic dust. Nobody looks at the cosmos and says, it's all intergalactic dust. The key to existence and meaning must lie in that which is pervasive and full and everywhere. Can't be man, must be intergalactic dust. So, you know, the inference from creation's vastness does not lead the psalmist into despair. It doesn't lead him to assault the dignity of man as it does for moderns. He's not thinking, God is great, the universe is immense, therefore we are puny and insignificant. It leads him to gratitude and wonder at what God and His tenderness has done. Why shouldn't it? If you find yourself as a young child in an enormous and gorgeous, sprawling estate Do you think, gee, I must not be very important to my parents. why, Why not just think, no, look what my parents have provided for me. The sprawling vastness of the cosmos leads the psalmist to recognize, yes, I'm small. But it also means he sees God's tenderness. He says in the text, God cares for man, that he attends to us that he makes us the objects of his intimate concern. I mean, long before his time then, the psalmist seems to believe in something like what modern scientists call the singularity principle. The singularity principle is the idea that the physical universe is fine-tuned. You've probably heard this, right? It's fine-tuned to the Existence and the support of human life. So that if you change any of the basic physical constants of the world, even a a tiny bit, you know, 10 to the minus ninth, very, very small amount, life vanishes. It simply becomes impossible. Now, this has been acknowledged even by you know unbelieving scientists that the universe that we are in is tuned to human life in a uniquely precise way. And the psalmist has some insta. Of course, he wouldn't use this language. But he sees the vastness and he concludes, wow, God thinks about us. He's mindful of us. He cares for us. That's what this vastness means. That means he's made this vast theater as a habitation. Not a place to foster despair. He, he holds us in remembrance. He thinks about us. So we are small, there's no doubt about it. But we're cared for, we're kept in mind by the Lord, whose name is majestic in all the earth. So the psalmist looks out here, and he ends up with a kind of childlike wonder and a kind of gratitude, which we have to continually seek to recapture. He sees glory where we see whatever the forecast. I think G.K. Chesterton helps us here with a little verse from a poem he wrote called Evening, Evening. And Chesterton says this. Here dies another day during which I have had eyes, ears, hands, and the great world round me. And with tomorrow begins another Why am I allowed two? That's the astonishment of the psalmist. Why am I allowed two days in this great wide world with eyes and ears and hands? Even beyond this, if we read in verse 5, you can see it says, you've made him a little lower than the angels or the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. Right? Man is made in God's image. He has a certain high responsibility with respect to the lower creation. Verse 6, you've put everything under his feet. You've made him the ruler of the works of your hands. He's citing Genesis chapter 1. He says, you're royalty. You're the crowning achievement of this vast, glorious cosmos. And he marks the specifics of his dominion in verses 7 and 8, right? Cattle, beasts, birds, fish. Now, right here is where I want to shift our attention. This this passage, verses 4 through 6 of Psalm 8, is cited in a quite important manner in Hebrews chapter 2, which was our New Testament lesson this morning. And you'll notice there in Hebrews 2, it says, Now it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come of which we are speaking. And then the writer cites Psalm 8. He cites verses 4 through 6 of our text. Now this is a remarkable assertion. It's really easy to miss the force of it. I'll admit it was lost on me for years. Psalm 8, for the writer of Hebrews is about the subjection of the world to come to man. I I would suggest that we probably all have read Psalm 8 dozens and dozens of times in our Hebrew Bible, right? And we've probably all thought, yeah, it's a psalm about creation and man's role in creation as, uh, you know, the image of God. Then the writer to the book of Hebrews looks at Psalm 8 and says, no, Psalm 8 is not just about that. And if you read it just that way, you're reading it like a Jew would read it. Which is a fine first reading, but we reread the Psalms in Christ. Psalm 8 is a new creation psalm. It's about the coming of the kingdom. It's about not this heavens, but the new heavens and the new earth. It is not about this world. It is about the world to come. And the subject of the psalm is the one new man, Jesus Christ. That's what the Hebrews 2 passage demands us to say. This is why we read the old in light of the new. So the writer gives this a Christ-centered interpretation. He says that in putting everything in subjection to man, God left nothing outside man's control. But the writer in the book of Hebrews continues and he says something important. He says, we do not yet see everything subject to him. This tells him there's a problem. Have you ever read Psalm 8 and gotten to the point about man has dominion over this and over that and over this and over that? And thought, hmm, I don't really see that dominion fully manifested. That's what the writer to the book of Hebrews does. He says, we don't see this. He says, man has not made good on the dominion mandate from Genesis chapter 1. We don't see this total dominion hinted at in Psalm 8 in force anywhere. But he says, look, we do see Him. We see Jesus, who for a little while was made lower than the angels. Referring again, back to Psalm 8. So the true man, the one made lower than the angels, at least for a time, is Jesus. And we see Him. The writer of Hebrews says, we see Him crowned with glory and honor. Again, another reference to Psalm 8. Because of His suffering and death. Now that man has sinned and now that the second Adam has come, we cannot read Psalm 8 about being about man in general. The man of Psalm 8 is Jesus Christ. And by implication, those who are restored in him. Jesus is the one with total dominion. He's the one made lower than the angels. He's the one crowned with glory and honor and he's the one who in the climactic hour of his suffering was hailed out of the mouths of babes. This this is why Jesus, one of the many reasons why Jesus is cosmically important. Not just important for the salvation of a soul here or a soul there. He's the humanizing human. He's the man Adam was supposed to be. He's the only one we see who has everything subject to his feet. And even that has not been fully realized. It awaits the world to come. You know, Psalm 8, one of the things it should do is point us, like spur us, toward the life of the world to come. Now, this means when we think of creation, we have to think of it in Christ. Our our thoughts here should move something like this. We look at creation... We see man is small, he appears insignificant. But we know God cares for us. We know God's mindful of us. We know that he's crowned Adam and Adam's race with glory and honor. That he's given us dominion. We usually get all of that right. All of that we get right. What we don't do is move on to the vision that the writer of the Hebrews opens up. We should realize that not all things are subject to us. That in profound ways we forfeited our glory. You might say, well, how has man forfeited his glory? Well, how about this? The limited dominion that we have now ends with us returning to dust. And so we should ask, precisely where and in whom is Psalm 8 realized? Right? Creatures who return to the earth should not be going around thumping their chests about their dominion. That's not the dominion envisioned in Psalm 8. We have to see Jesus who, because of suffering and death, is crowned with glory and honor. We hear echoes of this psalm, by the way, throughout the New Testament. In 1 Corinthians 15 Speaking of the exalted Christ, Paul says he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. All of this, all things under his feet language, which which is spoken of of Jesus in the New Testament, it refers back to Psalm 8. All things were placed under man's feet, that's true. But man fell. And now he has a disordered relationship. And now, in fact, he returns to the creation. The creation eats men up. But all things are under Jesus' feet. He's the head of all things to the church. So again, the subject of Psalm 8, the man of dominion, is Jesus Christ. One of the things Psalm 8 does then is it tells us we can't separate creation from redemption. Redemption. There's no proper way of getting at creation except in Jesus Christ, in the Redeemer. And this means our work in the creation is done in and with and through Christ and it is oriented toward the life of the world to come. I know this is hard to grasp. It might sound strange to you, but I, I, let me go back to the point about reading Psalm 8. Surely most of all of us have read Psalm 8 before. Probably many, many times. When the New Testament authors read it, they think of the life of the world to come. I bet you and I, when we read it, we think, wow, creation is glorious and man should take care of the animals. This shows how far we are, actually, from reading texts properly. Right? The writer of the book of Hebrews looks at that text and he says something that we would probably never say and probably never have said in reading it hundreds of times. He's trying to show us Jesus Christ and point us to his resurrection, his exaltation, and thus the life of the world to come. He sees it in Psalm 8, we don't. And so one of the great functions of this text is to show us how the New Testament enables us to see Jesus Christ in the Psalms. He is the man of Psalm 8. That means that the majestic name of God, the God of Israel, which is extolled to the ends of the earth, is fully revealed in Jesus Christ. This is what links verses 1 and 9 to the rest of the text. The God of Israel, whose name is universal and renowned, has manifested Himself in Jesus Christ. His is the name which is above every other name, whether named in this age or in the age to come. He's the man of royal dominion. He's the man of Psalm 8. And it's in him that you as a royal people, to him as your royal head, sing, O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is your name in all the earth. Amen.